We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. We return to the Dosta Coaster, a.k.a. We Are Talking About the Idiot Part 2 today. And let's get into some crashes and highs and lows. <laughs> now, with that said, I do like this line from Lizabetta. She says, I declare this is a lunatic asylum. <laughs> I agree. The, the Codex Cantina is that. Or was she talking about? I was us? actually referring to this <laughs> this party, dude. Like it was it was pretty intense. And they were bickering over whether someone should or shouldn't have to pay. So it reminds me every time you have to split a bill with like a lot of different people. And I have a quote from James Baldwin that I thought was quite appropriate. He says, you read something which you thought only happened to you, and you discover that it happened a hundred years ago to Dostoevsky. This is a very great liberation for the suffering, struggling person who always thinks that he is alone. This is why art is important. Art would not be important if life were not important, and life is important. Dang, that's pretty deep, James Baldwin. Jimmy B knows a thing or two about writing. So I, I definitely appreciated that and can kind of reflect on how maybe we might see certain elements of this of ourselves in this book. Well, art imitates life and life imitates art back and forth. And this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest author of all time. And he does that masterfully. Now, speaking of imitations, you might have a copy that is imitating this book that is not. <laughs> there are 12 chapters to part two. If you didn't see our before you read section, it was like an early warning. If your book has eight chapters, it has chopped out some of this party that we're going to be discussing. So just be aware that you can go out to Gutenberg. I'll put a link in the description down below where you can read those missing parts for free. But we're going to be covering the complete and intended 12 chapters for this discussion today. Just a side note, did we ever figure out why that happened? Like, what was the no. purpose behind that? No, never did. But let's talk about what happened to get everybody on the same page for those out there listening right now. So six months have passed since part one. Part one all took place in one day. And it's kind of like this build up, like all this crazy moment. And then we have like a, a release, an info dump to some people. But it's it's definitely slowed down in the first part of chapter two, where some people may feel like the novel's like, well, wh where are we going? How do we get our bearing? And I know I certainly felt that way at first, too. I kind of enjoyed that. It was like it hits you with the action. And then it's like, all right, now we're going to see how this goes and plays out. And it does slowly ramp back up towards the end of part two. And I, I was OK with that. I thought it was a nice kind of change of pace towards most standard literary novels yeah and i have a point to talk about that particularly related to epilepsy but let's keep going before we kind of jump into that and i might save that for next week's discussion we'll see oh are you gonna go all meta on us <laughs> you darn right i will I so love all it. right I'm excited mishkin heads to Ragosian's house which is dark rundown knives are just out everywhere and <laughs> reminder his name rogo means horns and there they see this painting on the wall where we'll get more into that, but they, they exchange crosses and it's kind of like a big symbol of orthodoxy individuals to be wearing this cross around their neck. 
But uh, Mishkin promises he won't see Nastasia. Leaves Rogosian immediately goes to see Nastasia. <laughs> so so Rogosian <laughs> goes to stab Mishkin, but Mishkin first falls to an epileptic attack. Now, when he wakes up, Lebedev has him set up, chilling at the summer summer cottage, if you will, in uh, Pavlovsk, I think it was, to recover, where literally everybody comes to visit him. Like, it's kind of a theme, too. Like, remember, in part one, he gets set up at Ganya's place, and everybody comes to his room. And now everybody's coming to his room as he recovers, even though he was kind of like the outcast at first. Been accepted very wholeheartedly by the group. I kind of love it. It makes you feel good inside, right? Well, he gets the very loving nickname, if you will. Maybe you can call it that. The Poor Knight, which is a reference to Pushkin's poem as well, which is a reference to, you know, Don Quixote of Cervantes. And we're going to get more into that. But soon four guests arrive. Antip Berdovsky, Lebedev's nephew, Ippolit, and Keller uh, with some shocking news. Pavlashev, a.k.a. the guy that was paying for, you know, Mishkin's treatment in Switzerland, well, he had another child, allegedly, and that child was none other than Antip Berdovsky. Ooh, and what could happen? Some civil rivalry. So Antip claims to be the rightful heir to Pavlashev's money, essentially, his inheritance. And Keller has published the letter in questionable detail as you read this. If you're reading it and you're like, wait, that doesn't, that's kind of what, yeah, it was on purpose. And uh, that's kind of how this came to be, where Ganya suddenly turns into Perry Mason. It's done all this for <laughs> It did feel like that, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, like he just suddenly can call out Antip for all this stuff. He was sent on that journey, right? And points out that the timing of the pregnancy and the traveling of the father don't exactly line up, so there's no way he could be biologically related. Uh, but this does kind of set up the question of what will Michigan do with the money, and he does give Antip money. Interestingly enough, now Ippolit kind of—I would say—he leaves on bad terms. It's—it's kind of interesting the way that the, the drama of the moment of of the moment flares up, and even Lizabetta is just like super dramatic. Like you can't have a Dostoevsky novel without super hyperbolized, super exaggerated characters. I would say. Well, I mean, there's a lot of tension between there, and money will definitely always be a driving factor between friends and family, and that's no doubt. And maybe that's part of what Baldwin saw was the bickering of money. I don't know. But we'll uh, we'll keep moving on where we see that the woman, speaking of bickering about money, a, a woman they don't recognize shows up in a carriage and yells to, you know, Jenny Radomsky, hey, don't worry about that money. You're good. You know, forget those debts. And everyone's yeah. like, what? Debts? <laughs> I thought you were rich. <laughs> Old Dostoevsky pulling the rug over our eyes <laughs> or underneath us. Something for both. <laughs> Later, Keller comes to visit Michigan and is called out for just being there for money. Shocking. <laughs> and uh, he is visited by Missy Punchin, who vows to hook him up with Aglaya, kind of pulls him off by the by the coattails to go to talk to her. So that's kind of the high level of what happens in part two. Again, some of that party scenes with the letter may be a little confusing for those of you missing those parts of this chapter. Let's uh, let's continue some of the discussion we started last time with do intentions matter because on tip shows up here with a demand for money. You ought to give me money. And I think you can see how he sneaks in some of those assumptions about nihilism and discussion here. But we have the quote, but we are also aware that if actual law is not on our side, human law is for us. Natural law, the law of common sense and conscience 
which is no less binding upon every noble and honest man, that is, every man of sane judgment, because it is not to be found in miserable legal codes. So who deserves this money, Mr. Crypto? Alms to the poor. I mean, tithing, you can see it as that. And, and we know that Michigan is our Christ-like figure of many people have pointed out. And I think that plays into this, that he's going to give to those that are less fortunate than, than him. And he sees money is not something that is a necessity. He thinks that if somebody else can be better off with it, why not give it to them? Well, and I think that's an important part, because if we are going to delve into ethics, you know, ethical nihilism, if you will, obviously nihilism meant much different things in 19th century, and it's grown a lot <laughs> over time with political and uh, passive nihilism, stuff like that. But let's focus on, sure. is there right or wrong in ethics? Because I think one of the interesting things that is kind of balanced out with should you in this is... Like, should you feel compelled to have to help someone less fortunate, someone can't manage their money, that sort of thing, is that idea of pity, right? Like, like what is it about human beings that forces these things, right? Because we have this interesting scene with Miss Impunchin, who, boom, on a dime, right? Dramatic, I get it. Just suddenly starts showing compassion for Ippolito, right? And it's kind of like she only cares for him because he's sick and dying, right? Is that... You know, you hear these modern terms about doing it for the social credit or, you know, kind of trying to like white knight for a cause. But this is something that before all of those social pressures existed, you could see still existed. It was still her showing compassion. What was it that was compelling her to do that? I think even back then, people were still looking for that social notoriety. Throughout this story, Ippolit is bitter uh, and dying and should be given things because of circumstance. And Mishkin gets everything for free, and he has a great life. Everybody treats him wonderfully. And maybe that's the point of it, is if you do good, good things happen to you. But Ippolit isn't doing bad things, so why are bad things happening? Mm. So it's almost kind of like an argument of equity. Should we all have the right you know, currency to spend, in a sense? And I don't mean that from a monetary standpoint. But like, if you take that and compare that with uh, Antip as well, who had health issues, right? his mother doted on him, and we have the quote... Your mother confirms this and agrees with others in thinking that he loved you the more because you were a sickly child, stammering in your speech and almost deformed. So maybe the way we look at Antip, right? In today's time, we have this concept of ableism, right? And you have the, for many years, you had pity based on people needing to be fixed, right? Like as if there was something wrong with them. And that's kind of what the characters are looking at from a 19th century standpoint when they look at Ippolit. Right. He didn't have, I'm sorry, I said Ippolit, Antip. Because Antip had the stutter and the health issues and stuff, he didn't have as many of the uh, similar equity options that I think people today do. And I think that kind of pushes pity upon him in a sense, too. I agree. I, I think the other side is people might argue was like, well, Michigan also has, you know, a disability, you know, his epileptic seizures. And he doesn't let it define him as a person, and he moves past that. And I think that's where we start to see the division of these two characters. Why is one being, you know, doted on more often than the other is one doesn't say, oh, 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 me, and says, you know what, this is part of me, but it isn't just me. Well, and to that point, compare that with Nastasia, right, who has this self-destructive, absorbing behavior, but Mishkin still shows compassion and pity to her. 
right? They talk about it's not romantic love. It's more of like a, a pity, compassion love, maybe more like the lines of like, like what Christ would show to people. And why would she deserve that, but Michigan doesn't? Yeah, for me, I think it's, you know, sometimes we have control over certain things and other times not. And here, Nastasia has control over her own destructive behavior. And it's the only thing that she truly has control over because everybody has told her what to do her whole life. And so at least it's some semblance of control. And for some people, that's enough, even if it's something bad. Well, and if we talk about like the, the era in which this was written, you have a lot of people in terms of the Russian orthodoxy who are kind of commanded to show pity, to love thy neighbor, if you will, in a sense. And that's becoming, that's coming under direct fire with nihilism at the time, saying that there is no design and that socialism is kind of showing up and such that I think those, those claims are coming under fire. And Dostoevsky's kind of raising his point, I would think, here. Because, because Lizabetha, while she's very emotional in this scene, is ultimately, I think, the linchpin for Dostoevsky's argument here, I think, right? Because we have the quote, but you counted on the prince's gratitude towards Pavlashev. You never lent him any money. He owes you nothing. Then what were you counting upon if not on his gratitude? If you appeal to that sentiment in others, why should you expect to be exempted from it? So to me, this is kind of that argument of like what ethically compels us to help others in a sense. And for a lot of people, that's going to be religion, right? And I think that's what Dostoevsky might be arguing, at least from the way I looked at it, is you don't have morals if you don't have religion. Why would you be exempt from it else is kind of what I think he's writing here. I would say, too, that Lizabetta is maybe arguing from a place of empathy, right? Like, this is what uh, we are supposed to do. And maybe, this is kind of a weird foil, but maybe Mishkin is the foil where his argument is from a place of actively doing that, right? It's kind of like if you compare it to some of his other works where he'll start to explore active love and actively doing. Elisabetta talks about the, the, the place from which it comes is compassion and empathy, which you could associate with religion at that point in time. And Mishkin is doing it not from a place of where he ought to be doing it, but because he truly has it in a sense. And I think that's an important part when we talk about the design versus the actual actions an individual takes. And for me, I guess I looked at it as why does he have it? Or why is he better at these actions and treating other people than the rest of the characters in the book? Yeah, and I think that is, I think this this part of the book tackles that the best. Because in this part, we also have the Rogosian scenes, right? Where we go to his place, it's dark, it's dreary. <laughs> like oh, it's that house, definitely man. It paints a picture. <laughs> Pun intended. His, his yeah, no kidding. His father <laughs> is painted as a merchant caring about money and materialistic things here. And I mean that in the materialism of physical items in this world. And we get to this painting in a sense. And there's these really interesting concepts of of God and belief at this point in time, coming back to your point of why would Michigan act? Well, first of all, we learned that in, in some translations, and I understand your translation may not have this exact phrasing, but mine did. We have the quote when, when Michigan's asking about Rogotian's father, was he one of the old believers, capitalized old believers? No, he went to the church, but to tell the truth, he really preferred the old religion. 
Okay, so we need to pause there. Crypto, from a historical standpoint, are you familiar with what old believers were? Yeah, so there's a little breaking up of the church. So you have original Catholicism, and then it's going to break into different pieces, and you have Catholicism and Greek Orthodox Church, and then that's going to split again. So we have like new iterations being formed over the centuries. And one of those has to deal with um, a very specific situation with like old believers being the proper noun is a situation where the patriarch of Russia realized, oh, we have some differences in our rituals and I think our texts from what Greek Orthodox has. So what he did is he rewrote them to be the Greek way. And some of the old believers were people who didn't ascribe to that. They're like, no, 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 no. This is the way we do this. This is the Russian way. And you can see a lot of those Slavophile you know, pro statements from Dostoevsky at this point in time is I think he's kind of like becoming kind of sympathetic to them. I don't think he's making a case for, but he's clearly calling out that there are these sects of people that don't even follow some of those, oh, oh we're not going to believe in the Greek Orthodox way. You can't just rewrite them like that. One way I guess to interpret is you see the rolling back of the religion. They've been, quote, evolving or moving forward in a Russian mindset. And now people are saying, well, it was originally like this. Why don't we go back to that way? Well, and interestingly enough, you'll see that he's like, no, he goes to the church, a.k.a. the the act of Russian orthodoxy, right? And we see this with his mother, right? Because when his mother blesses him, you'll notice that she raises three fingers, right? And old believers would only raise two fingers at this point in time. And so Dostoevsky is calling out how the father, while he practiced at that church, he truly believed in the old ways of life, right? So coming back to the intention versus action, there is kind of like a call out in the difference with the father. And this all comes to a head, in my opinion, in my reading of the story, where Rogozhin says, Mishkin, do you believe in God, essentially? Do you, do you think that this is Dostoevsky saying his own personal beliefs? Is he writing through these characters? Is he questioning his own faith? or the faith of Russia as a whole, as it is slowly transitioning away from Russian Orthodox beliefs? I think there can be an element of that, but did you know that there's actually an autofictional element to this as well? That Dostoevsky, like the writer, the author in real life in in 1867, sorry, he saw this actual painting, right? And said to his wife, one could lose one's faith from that picture. And it's claimed that this painting was using, I guess, a real model. I don't know if that's true or a legend, but it was like a a body that had been putrefied after three days, right? Like in terms of like, you know, what the body goes through when it comes to decomposition. And you look at it and you think about this and compare this to religion where I think the implication is, okay, logically, if I'm trying to think this out, how could I believe that Christ would just rise from the dead if his body's decomposing? Like, how does he just instantly not go through that process when you look at this painting? And I think it calls into question the logic and understanding of it versus the belief and just intuitively believing in it argument as well. I think we see a lot of maybe modern idealism here with science, and we've grown to learn so much about the human body in the 19th century due to new technologies and believing is seeing seeing is believing and then you see this picture of what it really could have looked Mm -hmm. like two thousand years ago and it's going to start making you question your faith a little bit and maybe he's having a little bit of that existential crisis that many of us go through at certain points in our life right right and i really like the way 
something about Dostoevsky's writing is so magical when it comes to literally, he's just like, I need to get to the heart of this toughest thing I can think about when it comes to my beliefs. And that's, that is why his writing has withstood the test of, he never straw mans his arguments. And he, he doesn't just give an answer when he's like, do you believe in God? Mishkin goes through these like four use cases of, varying levels of difficulty to understand and, and counteract. But to me, they're all showing how belief versus action slash, um, I guess, logically rationalizing versus belief and actions are kind of pitted against each other. And like something as simple as just like, well, I don't believe is actually kind of like one of the worst things to Dostoevsky and religion, right? Like that's one of the main core tenets of Christianity is you must accept <laughs> that it's true. And he goes through these situations where these characters don't necessarily believe in their actions or their actions betray their words. Like, like it's, it's, it's a, it's a perfect use case to put into words, which can't be put into words, I guess is what I would say. I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's magical, something that you can't wrap your head around and conceive of. These characters are going through that in their daily lives of, I can't believe this is happening. And it kind of all relates back to, you know, they're, they're dwelling on something that is, you know, monetary, the money, the materialistic stuff. But we see the, the change of people's hearts. We see the, the change of people's character, you know, through Michigan. And I, I think that was really more the point of, of especially part two here is that you, you can do the right thing with or without the religion if you don't focus so much in on the money. And it's not logical at all, right? Because these people for so long, because of serfdom and all of the political woes of Russia in the 19th century uh, and being told what to do, there's a guy that comes along that just does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And that's breaking their logic. He's like like a little civil disobedience protester where like he never comes out and like tries to argue or overpower through rationalization, anything. He just shows compassion. He just shows love. And it breaks people because there's all these social norms like we've talked about at the time about how you ought to behave, what you need to do legally. And he just comes from this place of empathy that I think just breaks characters' understandings of situation and even life of like, oh, we can do that sort of thing. Oh, he really will do this sort of thing. And even like, you know, when you compare chapter one when he asks General, when he stops to say, General Punchin, how you doing? And General Punchin's like, oh, you didn't come here for money. Let me give you some, right? Like that was one view. <laughs> well, here he's like like living the exact same thing where, uh, what was it, Keller came to him and he's like, hey man, can I have some money? Basically, and he's like, oh, or he said he said something else, but Michigan calls him out saying like, hey, you're here for money, right? And, and then he gives him money anyways, right? Like he feels compelled to help others through actions. He changes I don't want to say the world, that's a little dramatic, but he changes some hearts in this situation. Well, I mean, if you change one heart, have you changed the world? Oh, why are you going to ask you have. questions like that? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all, right, all you uh, need to change. And change your own heart, too. And that I think that's what we're seeing with Michigan throughout this story is his own heart is changing as... And it's not getting corrupted. And that's what's beautiful part about this story. And I thought that was a strong part of part two was that he's he's not being corrupted by all of this and we see it, it it's seeping into other people's lives his positivity and not their negativity another use case for the argument of like corrupted versus incorruptible right yeah exactly
he's the poor knight. He is the poor knight. And that was another interesting part <laughs> about this is, uh, I mean, Don Quixote, legendary story, right? From like 16 something, somewhere around there. I think it was kind of published. 15th, 16th century. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, amazing piece. And uh, Dostoevsky calls it out, which I thought was a really interesting parallel because uh, he's a knight errant, you know, Don Quixote traveling, traveling around, trying to restore chivalry, trying to restore compassion, I guess. And in a sense, I guess I never really compared that to the journey, the odyssey that Mishkin's going on, trying to restore what? What is his argument? Is he trying to restore morality? Is he trying to restore compassion? I don't think so, because one, I think, was on that mission, and the other is just doing it, not nonchalantly, but just doing it regardless uh, he, he doesn't have that intent and we kind of that brings it back to kind of full circle we talked about is don quixote i think has the intent and michigan doesn't and that doesn't make one better than the other but it does show the different paths that i think that they will end up on again i don't know how it's going to end up for michigan but knowing dostoevsky probably not good <laughs> <laughs> well we know he is definitely a holy fool Right, and if you look up that term, it refers to the behavior, such as giving up all of one's worldly possessions upon joining an ascetic order or religious life, deliberately flouting society's conventions to serve a religious purpose. And I think we see how Aglaya kind of calls him out, calling him the Don Quixote of, of morality, if you will, that, that he will literally devote his life to this concept of changing the world through compassion and caring, almost. I mean, that's... That's the goal, right? That's that's what you want to do? At least that's what Dostoevsky, I think, wants us to do. Well, let's put it this way. How do the characters react to this challenge, right? Does Aglaya tell this story and everybody in instantly understands her sermon, if you will? Everybody understands the point. Is that what happens in this? No, definitely not. Right. We have them going off like, oh, I should read Pushkin or, oh, that's a great poem, right? Like missing the point of of dedicating your life to a purpose, to being a good person, if you will. Like they, they miss the concept of being a good person in a sense. And then on the shields, you have like the AMD, which stands for the Ave Mater D, you know, kind of like the knight standing up for the Mary. And here you have her kind of switching out the initials. So my footnote, I would never have noticed this, but my footnotes put a little thing in there that says like, oh, the uh, NPB stands for basically Nastasia's name. And I guess based on your translation, oh. the initials might be different. But she snuck into this poem the that the, he's dying on his cross, in a sense, for Nastasia to, to say, this is what I'm, what I'm going for. And does she show him pity for that? Yes. So last time we talked, you brought up an interesting statement where you said you didn't think a person living this Christ-like journey could survives could exist in the real world tell me more about what that means we've talked a lot about corruptibility incorruptibility about understanding social norms versus believing in a cause versus living a cause how does this chapter change or maybe may have you articulate that that comment that you made i guess in his time period he could exist but this fictional character i don't think could survive 2022 there would always be somebody looking for what's his ulterior motive? What's he selling? What's he trying to get out of us? Nobody just does good for good anymore. And I, I think that we, we wouldn't see his foolhearted nature as, as genuine. 
that it's hard to find people that are just genuinely wanting to help one another nowadays. And that kind of breaks my heart a little bit. But I think in, in maybe in his contained life, that could happen. But I don't know about nowadays. I, I would hope agree. so. I completely agree that one thing that I want to look at internally is when I ascribe motives to other, right? It's too easy to throw out these terms about when someone's knighting for a, a cause or an agenda. And we never really understand another person. And I think that might be kind of my call to action when I read this book is how do I get better at admitting my humility that I don't understand someone's actions? And how do I better focus on what their actual actions are? Are the actions good? And is that enough? I don't know. But that's something I kind of want to maybe look at in my own life is how do I how do I take this and synoptically apply it to my own life? I think too, and maybe it's the cheap answer out is and maybe it is, and I don't know, I, I argue with myself, is life more complicated now than it was 150, 200 years ago? Yes, but complicated for us, complicated for them is the same thing. I mean, they're having all this civil disobedience across their country in Russia. You have massive technological changes like we have today. Life is messy, and I guess when you see somebody that doesn't care about all the mess and just lives how they want to, it's refreshing, but scary too, because you're like, I want to do that, but I'm too scared to do that. Yep. Yep. Well, we have parts three and four still to go through. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this read. I realize it was a little bit slower. We don't have time to go into, I think that analytic, uh, approach to epilepsy. I'm going to have to share some papers with you on our next talk on that. So let's keep going on with parts three and four here and continue the discussion. The playlist for this discussion is down below. Make sure you're following along and we'll see you on the journey. Una out. Peace.